please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 17. You've heard this passage of scripture before, but this is where I want us to begin. Paul writes toward the end of his letters to the Roman church. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, Paul was writing, of course, about the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, but the principle applies because we have the completed canon. We have Genesis through Revelation. Nothing more is needed. Now, our text this morning is a history lesson, but it's more than a history lesson. You see, we don't just look back at what what took place there and then. No, we also look ahead. And so we'll see that it provides a a map of sorts, uh, some guidelines. Uh, Given that we're in the book of the Acts of the Exalted Christ by the Holy Spirit in the church, founded by him through the apostles, Whether we're looking back or whether we're moving forward, our eyes always need to be on Jesus. He's the founder and the finisher of our faith, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Acts, we've seen thus far and today I believe we'll see, informs and deepens our faith in Jesus Christ. And because we are secure in him, we can have confidence. We can have courage and we can most certainly have compassion. Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, as we have just sung, your word is so clear and true. Would you be pleased, Father, to renew our minds to trust in you Father, would you give to us the bread of life that we may know the risen Christ and walk with him all our days. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're traveling today from a small town, Berea, to a much larger town, a much more well-known town, Athens. The, the, the golden age of Athens, uh, 500 B.C., Athens that was conquered in 146 B.C. by the Roman Empire. Um, let's see how Paul gets to Athens. Join with me as I read verses 14 and 15 of chapter 17. Now remember... Paul's getting run out of town again, and the brothers are protecting him. Again, it's the Jews, the religious, that are opposed to Paul, his message. He is being run out of town. The crowds are being stirred up, and so we read in verse 14, Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So there's travel from Berea to Athens by sea, by land. 
If you took the coastal road the whole way down, it would be about 222 miles. During this time, the first century AD, Rome is ruling the world, but Athens, Athens still remains as the intellectual capital, the, the center of philosophy. There was Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, and there's, there's architecture. Think of Greek architecture, and there is art, and indeed, as we will see, religion today. Now, you've probably heard the saying, attitude is everything. Attitude is everything. Uh, there's some books with this title, Attitude is Everything, Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. Attitude is Everything, 10 Life-Changing Steps to Turning Attitude into Action. Actually, attitude is not everything, but it is something, a very important something. Because what we'll see today as we begin to take a look at Paul in Athens is that that. Attitude precedes action and serves to explain action. It's a posture that influences the performance. So we're going to be in Athens here this week and next week, and we're going to take a look at first Paul's attitude and then his action. And today we'll consider the attitude that he had. Next week we'll focus on the action that he took. Join with me now as I pick up reading verses 16 through 21. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So before we get to the record of Paul's speech to the Areopagus in verses 22 through 31, we're going to see in Luke's narrative account, I believe we can see three attitudes of Paul. First, an attitude of rage. Second, an attitude of restraint. And third, an attitude of respect. Now, as we look back at Paul's attitude, we'll be in a better position to consider our own attitude as we look ahead to our proclamation of the gospel to the unbelieving world around us, here in Bellevue, in northern Kentucky, in, in greater Cincinnati. And we will see that there's not a lot of difference between the first century Athens and the 21st century America. Think about, just right off the bat, what a lot of folks like to do. Talk about something new, the latest thing, the newest thing. I mean, social media has just exploded this, this idea of what's the latest, what's the newest. So Athens and Northern Kentucky are really not that far apart. And so what we can learn by looking back 
we can certainly apply as we move forward. So let's take first a look at an attitude of rage, an attitude of rage. Notice, now while Paul was waiting, while he was waiting, uh, have you ever thought about that God's sovereignty and God's providence is, is in effect when you're waiting? Think about all the people you've met when you're waiting. Think of all the scripture verses you've memorized when you're waiting. Think of everything that's happened to you or that you've done while you're waiting. Waiting for something else. Paul is waiting for his friends, his co-workers to join him while he's waiting. Paul's also the one who later will write to a church and say, hey, the days are evil, so don't waste time. Redeem the time. And, and that's what's happened. He's waiting in Athens, and he starts to see that he is surrounded by people who don't share his deepest convictions. You know, we all sort of gravitate toward the people that agree with us, that align with us, right? It's kind of natural, and in one sense, that's good. But here, Paul finds himself surrounded by lots of people who do not share these deepest convictions of his. And notice, while he, he waits, he, he sees. He, he saw that the city was full of idols. He didn't see the beauty of Athens. He didn't see the brilliance of Athens. What he saw, what dominated his vision, was idols. The King James says that, instead of the city full of idols, that it was wholly given to idolatry. It's an idea of being smothered, swamped. Uh, some translation said a forest of idols. Athens at this time had a population of around 10,000, but many people, contemporary writers, would say that in Athens there were more gods than people. It was everywhere. It was ubiquitous. You know, I've lived near Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. I've been to Los Angeles, the city of angels. But here, Athens, the city of idols, he saw with his eyes. And he felt, he felt his spirit was provoked, we read. His spirit was provoked within him, not his, not the Holy Spirit, but just his own spirit, his, his soul, his inner man. It was stirred. It was greatly distressed. And there's an anguish of soul. Paul is exasperated. He's strongly moved. He's deeply troubled. Um, the original language has this medical connotation of something along the lines of an epileptic seizure. It's complex. There's, in this translation, uh, his spirit was provoked Within him, it's a deep mixture of anger and grief and sorrow. I think it's the Phillips translation that says he is exasperated beyond endurance. And so you see right off the bat, it's hard to capture kind of that, that emotion, that feeling within Paul. Now, the Greek parallels up with a Hebrew word, which is seen in the Hebrew scriptures of God's reaction to idolatry. At the time of the golden calf, at the time of gross idolatry and immorality when the, when the Israelites worshipped Baal of Peor, and when the northern kingdom made another calf in Samaria, 
we see this word show up, that God was provoked. And if you would turn with me to Isaiah 65. We were in Isaiah for our Old Testament reading, but in Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 2, we read this. The Lord is speaking through Isaiah. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. Paul is responding to what he sees in Athens in a similar manner to how the Lord responds when his people take their eyes off of him and place them on the material thing and they worship. You see, Paul sees idolatry for what it is, rebellion. And so he's outraged. But as we will see, Paul also sees it as slavery. And so he's going to have compassion. Paul felt outrage because of the holiness of God, but he displayed compassion because of the love of God. Now, before we move on, I want us to think about idolatry in Athens, because what we're talking about here are material and visible um, idols. Paul's going to talk in his letters a lot about idols of the heart. But here, the focus is on idols that you see with your eyes. And there's a lot of good definitions of idolatry, but here's, and here's one. An idol is something within creation that is inflated to function as a substitute for God. I think we all are familiar with that, is when something good maybe gets elevated to something ultimate, and you place your allegiance, your trust, your hope, you find your joy, your satisfaction, your security in something or someone other than God. It's the thing that if it was taken away, you couldn't live without. And I want us to note that just because someone says something is an idol or something is idolatrous doesn't mean that it is. Look with me at verse 23. This is in the, in the speech of Paul before the Areopagus. Paul says this, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, you see, Paul rightly sees all of these idols, not as just artwork, but as objects of worship. That's why he's provoked. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. So here's Paul observing Athens. What do we see in the world around us? What did you see on your way to Bellevue? to this place? What did you observe out there? What are the idols out there in our day? Again, not so much focused on idols of the heart, but we'll get there. But what do you see out there that people are paying attention to, if not to the degree of worshiping? And, and what's our response? What's our response? Is it to go tear them down? Is it to, to be sad and sorry? Is it to pray? I want us to keep that in mind. As we observe the things out and around us, how do we individually as Christians and how do we as a church respond? In just a few moments, we're going to consider Paul's respectful attitude in how he reasoned with many people. But we first need to note that his rage 
completely understandable, completely appropriate, was nonetheless restrained. So there's an attitude of restraint. An attitude of restraint. And in order to observe his restraint, we have to think about what Paul did not do. So Paul sees these idols. His heart is, is grief, anger, sorrow. And, and, and there's a threat. It's dangerous. And you know the responses to a threat or dangerous, right? What is it? Fight, flight, or freeze. You either fight it, you flee, or you're paralyzed, you freeze. Well, notice Paul doesn't go on the attack. He did not fight. So he reasoned. So Paul is provoked, and verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue amongst the Jews and the God-fearers. He's going to go to the marketplace where everybody um, is out talking about things. He's going to go eventually to the Areopagus, the center of kind of the the cultural... um, uh, the, the ones that govern moral, the, the council that governs morals and education and culture in the city. And he reasons. He doesn't go on the attack. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't fight. But compare that with Jesus and the Pharisees. You brood of vipers. Jesus fights. Think about um, Paul in, in Galatians. Uh, Paul in Galatians, uh, he writes in chapter 1, Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Holy smokes. Paul is not fighting in in Athens, but he's, as it were, fighting in his letter to the Galatians when he sees the gospel under assault, the gospel under attack. He even tells Peter, He even rebukes Peter. Why? Because his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So there's a time to fight and there's a time not to fight. Notice he did not withdraw. He didn't say, whoa, this city is full of idols. Makes me uncomfortable. I'm leaving. I'm going back. I don't want to be in Athens. He didn't run away. He he didn't flee. When he writes to the Corinthian church in chapter 5 of his first letter, he says, separate yourself from the believer who's an idolater. But he says, don't separate yourself from the unbeliever. Because then, guess what? You'd have to leave the world. And he didn't freeze. He wasn't paralyzed. Rather, he focused his attention and he engaged with people. And and yet his engagement was nonetheless restrained in at least two ways. First, notice that his provocation did not lead him to sin. His provocation did not lead him to treat others sinfully. In this case, 
Paul's anger that he kept inside to himself was righteous. Why? Because it lined up with God's view. And he did not use his being provoked as an excuse to then sin against people. And notice, what do these people say about him? These philosophers, they say he's a babbler. The idea is he's a seed picker. It's a derogatory term to talk about people who walk around picking up scraps of information. They're basically saying, Paul's this teacher. He's got strange ideas. He's not really going to be coherent. He's just a babbler. And he's also preaching foreign divinities. Now, now that sounds smooth and good, doesn't it? But imagine you're Paul and you're preaching Christ and the resurrection, the truth. And people think you are preaching some foreign God? No, you're preaching the living and true God. He didn't defend himself. Rather, he's going to wait. He's going to wait to an opportunity to proclaim, to defend the gospel. And we'll see that next week. He's going to trust God. So he's being, as it were, unfairly treated. He's being unjustly criticized, and yet he doesn't sin. Oh my goodness. How about me? What's my response to being criticized? I mean, there's good criticism and there's bad criticism, right? There's fair and there's unfair. Paul models a good response. And notice the environment he's in. Look at verse 21. It's this editorial comment that Paul, excuse me, that Luke kind of throws in there. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Paul has been given a revelation of the truth. He's met Jesus, the risen Christ, as it were. And he's in an environment where Everything is swirling and knew this and knew that. And that's all the people. Again, it's an exaggeration. It's for effect. I mean, not all the Athenians. I bet you could find one or two that didn't. But the majority who lived there would spend their time in in doing nothing except hearing something new. So here's Paul restrained in his thoughts, in his speech, in his conduct. How are we doing? Are we being restrained also? Do we have a bigger picture in view? Paul trusts God. He knows that he's going to be given an opportunity. If not today, then the next day. He's trusting God. He's restrained. Now, because Paul's understandable rage was also appropriately restrained, he was able to be respectful toward those who weren't just rebels, but slaves, who hadn't yet been rescued by Jesus as he had been. You know, I think as we see Paul not only in the letters he writes to the church, but in Luke's description of his ministry in Acts, you see that Paul's personal relationship with Jesus really is the engine that drives his ministry. There is no one more precise than Paul. And there is no one, as we see, that is going to have 
compassion like Paul. Why? Because he's been rescued by Jesus. He knows that who he's up against are people that haven't been rescued by Jesus. You know, if it's God's kindness that leads people to repentance, then Paul wants to be about that. But when the gospel is threatened, when the gospel is threatened by believers, professing believers, Paul will have none of it. He knows when to fight and he knows when not to fight. And so he approaches the people with an attitude of respect. Peter says that in his first letter that We're to give an account for the hope that is within us and do it how? With gentleness and respect. Paul writes to the Philippian church, let your reasonableness be known to all. Let your reasonableness be known to all. Uh, When the unbelieving world thinks about you, a Christian, when they think about this church, Are they going to see people who are reasonable? What are they going to see? He reasoned his message. What's his message? Again, it's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And and he's engaged and it's more than obedience. God is holy. God's glory is being threatened. Paul is rightly angry. But because Paul also knows God is love, there is a compassion in his engagement. And there are several audiences, right? There's the synagogue, the Jews and devout persons. And what's he going to do in the synagogue? He's going to use the scriptures. He's going to be using the word. But then he moves out to the marketplace, to those who happened to be there. And he's probably, since he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection, he's probably using scripture, the word, but he's also going to start to use the world. Kind of like Jesus said, consider the lilies. Consider the birds. Jesus is preaching the word, but he's using the world. And Paul will do that, as we'll see next week, in a brilliant fashion. The marketplace is the center of public life, the business life of the city. It's where people gather to, to see the, hear the latest news, to discuss many topics. And while he's there, he runs into some philosophers, the educated, the elite, and they're going to move him from the marketplace to the Areopagus, the Areopagus, the hill of Ares, the god of war, also known as Mars Hill. It's a place and it's a governing council. It's a an informal legislative and judicial council, and it guards the city's religion, morals, and education. And so we read in there that there are Epicurean philosophers and there are Stoic philosophers. Now, here you've got two major schools of philosophy competing, as it were, and and we could spend a lot of time talking about them. But I want us just just to get this kind of a summary because these are competing worldviews trying to make sense of life and trying to make sense of death. And even though this will be a simplification, I think it'll be helpful. The Epicureans, what do they do? They emphasize chance, escape, and the enjoyment of pleasure. The Stoics emphasize fatalism, submission, and the endurance of pain. 
So if you wanted to summarize it really quickly, there's one pleasure and the other pain. And, and one, and they view gods differently. And they're trying to make sense of life here on earth and if there is anything beyond life here on earth. So these philosophies, these man-made philosophies trying to make sense out of life are there in the marketplace and they're going to be in the Areopagus. And here are where people are talking and listening to the latest ideas. Uh, G.K. Chesterton says this, When men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. Isn't that the truth? In 2021, when you, when you, when you move away from belief in God, a God who's true, a God who is the God of gravity amongst other laws. When people stop believing in that, they will believe in anything. It's true for us. It's true for anyone. Imagine the scene again. Here is Paul. The city is full of visible idols, objects of worship. That, and, he's, and he's mixing up with different worldviews, different philosophies, trying to make sense of life. New ideas. New. Here's Paul. One message, one person. Jesus and his resurrection. In this competing arena of different this and different that, Paul is a one-trick pony. He's got one act in his play. You know, as we've been going through Acts, it's, it's, it's the same old, same old, isn't it? Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his life, his death, his resurrection. You know, John 11, Jesus with Martha. Her brother has died. She knows she's going to die. Jesus has the words of eternal life. Peter confesses it. Where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You see, my friends, it really is all about Jesus. And Paul, we will see, is going to use the Epicureans and the Stoics, and he's going to bring to bear the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ. Lots and lots of idols in Athens. But there's only one God made known in Jesus. So the stage is now set for Paul to explain what these things mean. What a softball. Look at that. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. In your sharing of Christ with family, co-workers, friends, neighbors, has anybody asked you that question? What do these things mean? What a great question. What an opportunity to share Christ. So he's going to speak in the Areopagus, and that'll be our focus next Sunday. But let's finish up with a few more thoughts on attitude. You see... What, what was Paul's message? Jesus and the resurrection. And, and what was Jesus' message? Think about it. 
Jesus proclaimed his own death and resurrection to his disciples who didn't get it. They didn't think he had to die. They certainly didn't think he was going to rise after that, did they? Paul is preaching Jesus and the resurrection, and Jesus himself is preaching himself and his resurrection. And the attitude that Paul has is shaped by the attitude that Jesus had. You see, Paul's attitude, Paul's motive is influenced by Jesus. And what is Jesus' attitude toward the world? We've been thinking about Paul's attitude toward the Athenians, right? Let's think about Jesus' attitude toward the world. Think about the Nicene Creed. For us and for our salvation came down from heaven. You see, my friends, the incarnation represents the greatest and the most startling immersion into a fallen world that can be imagined. What's the length that God would go to rescue people from heaven to earth, from absolute perfect glory to suffering, to difficulty? Jesus immersed himself in a fallen culture, in a fallen world. My friends, Paul, because he knows the risen Christ, he's following the way of Christ. And because Christ has risen and Christ will return, he can have confidence and courage and compassion as he thinks about his lost neighbors. So what's going to be our attitude going forward into this world, into the community? I was in a discussion with someone earlier today and I was being asked, what's our plans for outreach? You know, and to be sure, we're limited in a bit in what we would, as it were, normally do. But it's a great question because we want to be thinking about what is our plan for outreach? How do we get the good news of the gospel before a lost and dying world? You see, Paul's faithful witness in Athens is a model of spiritual maturity in a pagan and pluralistic culture because, my friends, we are in a pagan and pluralistic culture. And here's a model before us. And, you know, people are going to pick up our attitude as we approach them, right? We all have a radar, right? Sometimes it's off, but often it's on, right? You can tell when you're a project. You can tell where, when you're just a potential sales offer, right? Do people sense that we actually love them, care about them, compassionate toward them? People can pick it up. What are they going to think about grace and peace? Now, if they want to think about we are crazy because we believe in Jesus and crucifixion and resurrection and he's the only way, so be it, right? But may their offense be the cross and not our obnoxious, indifferent attitude toward them. May they reject us because of Christ. May they not reject us because we're jerks. May we be a people with an appropriate internal rage. 
May we be a people with the needed and necessary restraint. And may we be a people known for a proper respect toward people. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. I, I, I can't tell you how much I've heard these days of people saying, I hate these people and these people are evil. I mean, we've really got to check ourselves and I've been guilty of it too. Yeah, right? Paul doesn't look at the Athenians who have put up idols and say, you're evil. He doesn't hate them. He's rightly provoked. He's distressed. He's got an understanding of both the holiness of God and the love of God, neither to the exclusion of the other. And that brings appropriate balance to ministry. May God be pleased to use this portion of his word to instruct us. And may the God of endurance and encouragement grant us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome one another, including those who the Lord may call to himself. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that when Jesus entered this sinful and fallen world and he met people like us who rebelled against you and who were slaves to sin, that Jesus spoke words of truth. He called people to faith in him. We thank you, God, that you've opened our eyes to see, opened our ears to hear, given us new hearts to receive Jesus. Father, would you be pleased to do for others what you've been pleased to do for us? For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.